Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, August 5th. In today's news, the Republican establishment triumphs in Kansas as another House Democrat loses a primary in Missouri. For the unemployed, rising grocery prices are stretching budgets even more. And Spain's former king fled his country. But where did he go? First, though, the big idea. The death toll from explosions in central Beirut has passed 100. The blasts came from a warehouse in the port area that housed massive quantities of explosive materials. The Lebanese Red Cross says the city's morgues are accepting bodies directly, as hospitals can no longer cope with the corpses. Red Cross workers are scouring the wrecked and deserted streets in neighborhoods adjoining the port, calling out for residents who might be trapped and injured. The Red Cross said that at least 4,000 people have been wounded. Families put out frantic calls for missing loved ones across social media. There are bodies still visible in the rubble and in the waters of the port. Our two correspondents who live in Beirut, Liz Sly and Sarah Dadouche, have been sending chilling dispatches across the transom all night long. As the sun rose, they say the damage was devastating. The scene at the port felt apocalyptic, with smoke hanging above a crater gouged from the land running down to the sea and only one side of the warehouse still standing. A silo that provided most of Lebanon's wheat supply was ripped open. And in East Beirut, in the residential neighborhoods near the port, much was shattered. The historical arched facades were now piles of rubble and rebar. Dazed residents took in the extent of that area's losses. There were many indications that these blasts may have been a tragic accident. Lebanon's interior minister said it appeared that stocks of ammonium nitrate, a fertilizer that can be used in bomb making, had ignited. The prime minister linked the explosions to 2,700 tons of the dangerous chemical that had been stored at the port since 2014, despite warnings from port officials that the material was unsafe. Lebanon was already in the throes of economic collapse, accelerated by nationwide protests against a government widely viewed as corrupt and incompetent. Bailout talks with the International Monetary Fund have repeatedly broken down. Senior Lebanese officials have resigned, claiming that negotiators aren't serious about meeting the conditions for a deal, even as hundreds of thousands of Lebanese are pushed deeper and deeper into poverty. These explosions also coincide with mounting tensions between Israel and the Lebanese Shiite militia Hezbollah, which maintains a major facility at this port and has long been accused by U.S. officials of using it to smuggle weapons into that country. Our bureau chief in Baghdad, Louisa Lovelock, flags that this incident follows a spate of mysterious blasts at Shiite militia weapon storage sites in Iraq last year, which Iraqi and Israeli officials have said Israel was responsible for. And more recently, there have been a string of explosions at military sites in sensitive locations in Iran, which regional intelligence officials have also said Israel, at least in part, was behind. At a news conference here in Washington last night, President Trump called the explosion in Beirut a, quote, terrible attack and said U.S. generals who briefed him seemed to feel that it was, quote, the result of a bomb of some kind. But senior officials at the Pentagon, who are caught off guard by the president's public musings, said they have yet to make a solid assessment of the explosions. Meanwhile, Israeli officials, who were technically in a state of war with Lebanon, insisted that they had no role in the explosions. And Hezbollah, in a statement offering condolences, did not 
apportion blame to Israel. One thing that is clear is that the crisis-stricken country with its currency crashing and surging numbers of new coronavirus cases is in no position to cope with a disaster, let alone on this scale. At least two hospitals were badly damaged in the explosions. TV footage shows staff evacuating patients to alternate hospitals that were themselves swamped. And they're doing all this in the dark because the city still has no electricity more than 16 hours after the blast. Windows were blown out and check-in counters were damaged at Beirut's airport several miles from the explosion. Doors were also blown open and windows rattled at the U.S. Embassy, more than six miles away from Ground Zero. Our embassy has issued a warning telling all U.S. citizens there to stay indoors and wear masks because a toxic cloud of nitrous oxide continues to hang over the city like a cloud, and they believe it will for some time. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, Congressman Roger Marshall won the Republican Senate primary in Kansas on Tuesday night, defeating former Secretary of State Chris Kobach and easing GOP fears that a victory by the conservative firebrand could have cost them a seat in November. Marshall, a two-term congressman backed by the Republican establishment, especially Mitch McConnell, received a congratulatory phone call from President Trump and put the president on speaker for his supporters to hear. Republicans have held this seat without much of a contest for more than 100 years including the four terms of Pat Roberts, who's retiring. While Trump has waded into other congressional primaries at the behest of party leaders, he stayed curiously silent in this primary, despite a furious effort by allies of McConnell to block Kobach, who blew a winnable governor's race in 2018. Also in Kansas last night, freshman Congressman Steve Watkins, who just three weeks ago was charged with voter fraud, was defeated in a GOP primary by the state treasurer. Kansas was one of five states that held primary elections on Tuesday, and in Missouri, Congressman William Lacey Clay lost the Democratic primary, falling to Cori Bush, an activist who tapped into the recent energy of the Black Lives Matter movement to upset the 10-term congressman. Bush, a 44-year-old nurse and pastor, had never run for office before the Ferguson protests after the fatal shooting of unarmed black teenager Michael Brown by a white police officer. She made a bid for state Senate unsuccessfully, then turned her attention to Clay, whose family has held this safe seat from St. Louis since 1969. For the 2018 Democratic primary, she lost by 20 points. This time, she had an endorsement from Bernie Sanders and won. Number two, Tuesday marked the ninth consecutive day in which our country averaged more than 1,000 coronavirus-related fatalities following the recent peak in new cases. Our official death toll is at least 153,000. We also cannot forget the economic pain that this is causing for about 30 million Americans who have been laid off because of the contagion, especially now that their $600 enhanced unemployment benefits have expired. Overall, inflation has not been a pressing concern since the recession started in February before COVID arrived in force. Last week, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said consumer prices have been kept in check due to weak demand, especially in sectors like travel and hospitality that have been most affected by the pandemic. But food prices are the exception. Indeed, nearly every category of food has become more expensive because of supply chain disruptions and other factors. Beef prices are up more than 20% since February. Eggs cost 11% more. And poultry and pork cost 9% more on average. For those of us lucky enough to still have jobs, a new Harvard study out today confirms what you've probably experienced anecdotally. Remote work means longer days. 
The average workday lengthened by 49 minutes in the eight weeks following stay-at-home orders and lockdowns, and the number of meetings increased by 13%, according to the paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research. The study examined the anonymous email and calendar data of more than 3 million users from an unnamed tech provider. It also found significant increases in the number of internal emails being sent and in the size of meetings. Number three. When Spain's royal palace announced on Monday that former Spanish King Juan Carlos was leaving the country, it omitted a key detail. Where exactly had he gone? On Monday, several media outlets reported the former king had traveled to the Portuguese town where he spent large parts of his childhood. By Tuesday morning, Spanish newspapers were saying the 82-year-old was actually hiding out in the Dominican Republic. But later in the day, the Dominican foreign minister said that the former king had not entered that Caribbean nation. The coverage over there has at times more closely resembled a public manhunt for a high-profile suspect than the sudden flight of a disgraced former king. Investigators in Switzerland have been looking into offshore accounts reportedly linked to Juan Carlos for years. Those accounts are also being examined by prosecutors in Spain. At the center of the probe is a $100 million gift from the king of Saudi Arabia to Juan Carlos in 2008, and investigators are looking at whether it had a role in the subsequent contract for a Saudi high-speed railway awarded to a Spanish consortium. But after the allegations were made public earlier this year, the former king's son and successor, King Philippe VI, canceled Juan Carlos's $225,000 annual grant that he received from the government. Philippe also renounced his own inheritance, further distancing himself from his own father. The Barcelona newspaper La Vanguardia describes the former king's self-imposed exile today as both painful and therapeutic. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, August 5th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.